Good afternoon, everyone. Welcome to the Sunday, July twenty eighth episode of Poets and Muses. We chat with poets about their inspirations. I'm your host, Imogen Arate. You can follow us on our website at poetsandmuses.com or via social media on SoundCloud, Instagram, as well as Twitter under Poets and Muses. You can also subscribe to our weekly newsletter either at the bottom of our poetsandmuses.com website or at the upper right-hand side of our Poets and Muses SoundCloud page. With us today is Rick Castillo, with whom I will be discussing his poem "Rest in Space" and my poem "Wanna Come with Me." Before we do that, however, I'm going to go over all the poetry events taking place in the valley during the week of July 29th. On Tuesday, July 30th, from 5:30 to 7:30 p.m., Sarada Morgan will be leading the second of her four-part Built Environments Poetry Workshop. Called the Craft of Formal Innovation, which will take place at the Piper Writer House at 450 East Tyler Mall in Tempe, from 6 to 8 p.m. Connect and Heal will be hosting its weekly poetry writing workshop at the Chandler Community Center, which is at 125 East Commonwealth Avenue in Chandler, from 6:30 to 9:30 p.m. Nocturnal, the poet, and the Poor People's Campaign will be hosting the Art of Justice Open Mic and Art Show at First Church, which is at 1407 North Second Street in Phoenix. The entrance is in the back at the parking lot. Signing up to get on the mic starts at 6 p.m. on Wednesday, July 31st, from 6:30 to 8:30 p.m. Rosemary Dombrowski will be hosting the third of her three-part micro prose and prose poetry workshop, "The Art of Writing Concisely," which will be taking place at Changing Hands Phoenix, which is at 300 West Camelback Road. From 7:30 to 9 p.m., Lacuna Cavabar will be hosting its weekly open mic night on site at 8:31. North Third Street in Phoenix. Signing up to get on the mic starts at 7 p.m. On Thursday, August 1st, from 7 to 8:30 p.m., Sozo Coffee House will be hosting its monthly open poetry night at 1982 North Elma School Road in Chandler. From 7 to 9 p.m., Long Known Publishing will be hosting its weekly Phoenix Poetry Slam. At the Lost Leaf, which is at 914 North Fifth Street in Phoenix, make sure to get there by 6:50 to participate. From 8 to 11 p.m., Quentin Oni will be hosting his weekly open mic at Jobot Coffee and Bar at 333 East Roosevelt Street in Phoenix. On Friday, August 2nd, from 6:30 to 9:30 p.m. Rosemary Dombrowski will be hosting her first Friday poetry on Roosevelt Row, which will take place on the back porch of local First Arizona at 407 East Roosevelt Street in Phoenix. On Saturday, August 3rd, from 7 to 9:30 p.m., Daughter of Zen will be hosting her monthly first Saturday open mic at the Black Cat Coffee House. At 
East Indian School Road, Suite 120 in Phoenix. Signing up to get on the mic starts at 7 p.m. And now let us turn to our poet guest of the week, Rick Castillo. Hi, Rick. Thank you for coming on to Poets and Muses. Hey, Imogen. Thanks for having me. Downtown Phoenix is a rat race. <laughs> Thanks. Right. I felt like you really needed to get that out there. <laughs> I had hoped, honestly, you would have taken the conversation we had from the car. Oh, just kept going? Yes. yes. <laughs> no, no, no. Let's, let's, I mean, we are talking about cars. I mean, your poem is about car. Kind of. Yeah, so rest in space. But before we get into that, can you tell us a little bit about yourself, please? I work in probably the most drab career one could select, healthcare benefit management. If you like a challenge and you love banging your head up against the wall, I recommend that one. (laughs) Steady work if you can find it. I'm um, an art advocate. I make art, but I don't make a living off of it. Mm -hmm. There's a whole bevy of reasons I could get into about how I feel about artists for all. There should be a kind of a socialist stipend for it, regardless of whether there's a direct economic benefit from a benefactor relationship or public art like we need this thing kind of thing it's sort of like no this should be a modicum like a universal standard income for anyone who makes art or whatever Mm -hmm. i digress (laughs) um i play baseball i even in the weather and softball as well wherever there's a game basically it takes up a lot of time that i probably should be using creating something um (laughs) but it's fun it allows me to be kinetic and expressive kind of within a framework with the rules and everything of baseball mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. the challenge. Um, we've talked about, or at least hyped about, how you're not really too much into baseball. I'm not too much into sports, period. Just in general, when I'm watching sports, I feel like I'm being lazy because other people are doing all the work and I'm just sitting on my butt. So I prefer to be playing. I play softball. I sort hey, do you of... Play? Do, you, do you play anywhere right mm, now? No, no, I don't anymore, but... I don't mind joining a team. If I had the time right now, which I don't because the podcast is consuming my life, but if I had the time and not in May, Phoenix weather, because it's 100 degrees, people, 100 degrees in May. (laughs) Um, For me, this is just not sports season weather. I would be into playing softball. I love batting cages. Um, Oh, yeah. I would love to go. In fact, we'll we'll talk offline about that. I cool. just I want to go Absolutely. batting cages. It's a couple of good ones yeah. in the East Valley, where it's at East Valley, not Phoenix, <laughs> where Rick is from. By the way, if you couldn't tell, <laughs> St. Louis originally, which oh, comes really? up in the poem because it, it references uh, geographical things that are unique to the St. Louis metropolitan area. Oh, good, good, um, good. But I've lived in, in Mesa for the last nine years now. Okay. I'll be 10 next year. So um, I'm a very much East Valley. I mean, Phoenix is cool. You know, when I first got here, it was my introduction to the city, you know, Mm -hmm, for lack of a better term. It's one long, endless suburb. Right. But (laughs) it is the urban core. I do respect that it is the center of the region. It's just so cordoned off from everything, thanks Mm -hmm. to decades of poor urban planning and Mm. just a lot of things that Mm -hmm. would be quite a tangent for us to get on it, so... So you love it then? <laughs> <laughs> I, I love I love I love Mesa. I love the community that's there, the artists that are there, the people that I've met, the, the relationships that I've had. You know, mm-hmm. District Four, obviously, but also yeah. through Mesa Art Center, which got me into District Four. Ah, okay. And then just some of like the local like nonprofits and, and some of the business owners downtown. Like, right, you know, right, they're, right. They're just they're very much like a close knit group. Everybody yeah, talks about yeah, yeah. you know 
I, you've probably heard of Jamie Glasner. She's around. She does the uh, Mesa Heart Studio. She talks about it as being like cheers. Oh, like everyone oh, kind of knows your yeah. name. Everyone cares about yeah. one another. And that's kind of like the operative theme of mm-hmm. like, downtown Mesa. So totally, yeah. Totally yeah, it's definitely much more intimate. It's a smaller crowd, but they're trying to build it up as well. I mean, there's a lot of relocation probably from Phoenix over there. Oh, yeah, probably housing ca- uh, costs and, and whatnot. There's obviously art space, but that's kind of a, a drop in the bucket. And frankly, it, it, it's kind of turned out in a, a multitudinous um, map of all of the things that could happen in a universe given certain choices. It's almost like Mesa art space presently, and again, this isn't a popular opinion, but it might be a functionally accurate one. It's kind of taken one of the not as optimal paths, we'll, we'll, we'll say, mm. as compared to the vision. But maybe, again, as it, as it sits in there, as it becomes more a part of the community, as build-out kind of grows around it, um, right, right. maybe it'll also kind of be welcomed. I mean, Mesa Arts Center is doing their part to kind of bring them into the fold, mm-hmm. as are the businesses. But mm-hmm. right now, it's kind of sectioned off. Like, they just dropped it out of the sky. And there's kind of some characters in there that are, that are making life kind of difficult for artists who are notoriously like introverted and you know, uh, yeah. there's a very like specific space where you know they're comfortable and, and that's that's something to respect right, um, right. I like pushing buttons sometimes so <laughs> within reason not, not being a jerk or anything but mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. part of that's you know being a kinetic thing I suppose is yeah. making sure that, that people can feel comfortable and get kind of drawn out of that shell that they'll, they'll put themselves into. Yeah, which might not work for some artists who are the very introverted ones that you talked about. So it's, sure. it could be very, very awkward and painful for them. Right. Well, at the bare minimum, you know, not being woke up at 2.30 in the morning because the neighbors are having a knife fight or throwing things at each other or arguing or whatever other imbalances yeah. that are brought about naturally or artificially. Right, so, right, right. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's some people just don't play well with others. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but um, fortunately, I mean, you don't have to deal with that. You're not there. No, no, I don't. When you have a real, like, full time, like, BS day job, I mean, gosh, it's a terrible thing to say about one's longevity, but, um, you know. <laughs> Rick you, Castillo, <laughs> by the way. Rick you Castillo. <laughs> you don't want to, you know, like, you don't want to take a space away from somebody who legitimately needs affordable housing. I mean, everyone right. needs affordable housing. Everyone right. needs a nice right. place to live. But I mean, if it's a competitive application process, you don't want to be the guy that's like, well, if I misreport my incomes ever so slightly here, and if I say that, no, that's that's nonsense. I don't like it when people game the system like that. I think it's just really seriously, it bothers me, like at mm-hmm. the core when people do stuff like that. It just yeah. doesn't make any sense to me. Yeah, It's uh, against the design purpose. Yeah. So. Well, partly also because there are so few of them. So for people who don't know, uh, Mesa Art Space, or Art Space Law, Mesa Art Space Law, excuse me, is this apartment complex specific design for artists who are making some living. It's also low-income housing for artists, basically. Yeah. And they also have a studio space, a gallery, art space. It's an organization that's what, from Minneapolis. I, I want to say, yeah. Yeah, Minneapolis, and they have these apartment complexes all over the country. So it's it's a wonderful opportunity for artists, um, but, you know, there's not enough of them, and it's not always an uh, organic fit with the neighborhoods that they're in. So I guess it's going through a teething process because it just opened recently. That's a very good way of putting it, yeah, yeah teething process. Yeah. There are some really good good folks in there, some, some really cool cats and some people that are really making good work and are really about 
bringing people in and leaving it open. There's a gate on it for crying out loud. Like they, they want to like open it up and, and let people come in and experience what they're doing. So yeah, I, yeah. I, I was that. just at one of their events because they were doing the Mesa Arts Project, prototype project. Oh, yeah. So I contributed some of my poems and uh, some of my ideas. So let's see what happens. All the way from downtown Phoenix to downtown Mesa. Shh, yeah, I heard it first. <laughs> <laughs> They knew, they knew. Well, I'm really interested in the space. I like the idea of it. I like uh, a lot of the talents that are there. So it's, and that, in fact, uh, one of our first interviews in 2019, which is our third interview ever, is a Mesa Art Space resident. Oh, cool. Yeah, yeah. So it's Israel. People should listen to the episode. I'll link it. You mean they're available to listen to? They don't just disappear after the week that they were released? <laughs> Never. They're, they're going to be like a record for eternity. Wouldn't <laughs> it be fun to just have an event where you're just playing the podcast serially for like 48 hours straight? Ooh, that could be a nice <laughs> installation. You know what uh, Toto is doing in Africa? <laughs> you know, I think it's in the Nibian Desert. They're playing that song, Toto Africa, on loop. And it's solar-generated battery, so it's going to be there until that whole oh thing breaks gosh. down. God, I wish I had money. <laughs> <laughs> All the cool things. It's, <sighs> per- it's pretty amazing. You got to Google it and check okay. it out. They installed it, I forget if it was this year or last year, probably last year. They just installed it in the Namibian desert. What was was Namibia okay with that? Like, were they? I don't know. I I haven't had a chance to check out the background how it came about. I imagine they must have worked with the government. Uh, how they got it, who knows? I tell you what, you provide twenty thousand affordable housing units, and we'll pay you one point three million dollars to play Africa on. I don't know how. That <laughs> it seems to me like they're being amenable system in place where it's like yeah sure, sure. there's gotta be i want to know now I'm, I'm gonna go check it out once we're done with the podcast i've been not adjusting for the the regional economy well enough but yeah well hey whatever they're giving hopefully they're giving back <laughs> now now i have the song in my head great thanks <laughs> and I'm the one who brought it up. Ooh, nice. Okay, so going back to you and your poetry, how did you get into poetry anyway? Um, when I was just a little kid, I was a strange kid, I guess. I didn't really, like, I don't know. The, the other kids, like, I'd talk to them, and sometimes they'd just be like, eh, whatever. Or, hey, that's cool. For the brief time, it was cool to be smart when you're a little kid. Um so it was sort of like just my release, my outlet for things that were just like I couldn't get out of my head. I would mm-hmm, just keep mm-hmm. ruminating about it. It was just yeah. a natural expressive route. I had pretty good handwriting too, so it was it was good, you know, to be able to just Oh, you wrote it out. out. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. It wasn't even just like I have to write something for school. It was well, I can read what I wrote when I'm done and I'll be able to look back at it and, mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. see where I was at in that particular, you know, six months. A year later, whatever. I mean, it's kind of a it's a real interesting algorithmic curve when you're a kid when you're developing because you're just sort mm-hmm. of like the thing that you thought was like the thing. A year later, you're like, what the heck was I thinking? You know, right, like right, it's right. like that when you're an adult, just more like in five, ten year increments. <laughs> right, right, right. Do you remember how young you were when you first wrote a poem? Well, I used to write new lyrics to existing pop songs. So I remember oh. there was like a couple of Sting songs that I wrote alternate lyrics oh, to. Oh, really? Cool. Yeah, and. Uh, 
I think it was just sort of like in the frame of whatever thing we were doing at school that particular time. So if we were mm. reading out of certain, I don't know, like little accelerated readers or like in music class, they would have just these songbooks. So I would just sort of design the meter around whatever it was that we were doing oh, um, okay. just on my own just because school was kind of boring. And it was it was a fun thing to take what you had just learned and use it. Right, so, yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah, I just probably... I guess five or six years old then. Really? Um, oh, yeah, wow. Yeah, just, but, I mean, I guess what you'd consider for, for that age group, it wasn't like I was, you know, pinning, like, you know, a novella or anything that was cumulative like that. It was hey, just sort hey, of... Hey, don't, don't talk, you jump down, man. Well, Just no, tell people you were writing novellas. Everybody <laughs> writes when they, from the time that they, they, they know how to write. I think that a lot of people are capable of, of producing something, even when they yeah. don't yeah. necessarily, like, have it in them. Yeah, know? yeah. But I don't think a lot of people do it, though, especially that young. I think maybe you're one of the youngest ones that uh, I'm speaking with uh, in terms of the starting age of writing poetry. Yeah, well, it comes in and out, though. It's very cyclical because for mm -hmm. years, I didn't write anything. Yeah, that's the um, same Throughout thing. most of my 20s, actually, I didn't write anything. Mm -hmm. And that was something that I don't know really what it was. Like, I, I kind of would. I would do parodic things with, like songs or sometimes I'll get on an email prose kick mm. <laughs> it's great probably drives people crazy um, but it's so you're one of those people who write long emails. oh absolutely all the information's got to be there yeah. you gotta if they take the time they can really use whatever pieces out of it that they can like oh that was useful or something and they discard the rest whatever um, I think it takes an outlet it takes having a place to go mm -hmm. have a place to present your work Mm -hmm. a, a room that whether it's a safe space or a critical environment it really it's wherever you can feel comfortable exhibiting that sort of thing it's having yeah. an outlet yeah which is why district four is so wonderful because it does right. give you the outlet it's very welcoming and the people are very accepting and yeah so that's definitely helpful so do you want to read that poem for us and then we can get into the nitty-gritty of it sure absolutely somewhere along interstate 5570 on your way to playing titan-sized Tetris with the forgotten wares of yesterday's wanderlust and the refuse deemed unfit to consume, the wily and discerning radar gun sought to finally capture you, to disrupt the rally that was your morning commute. I pictured your chalkboard black Chevy citation deflecting the beams of icy velocity-regulating justice, the great scales of the Mother Road's blind sensors seeking to exact their freight. A clever fox fleeing the hunter you were, scattering the chickens, leading them astray through the brackish arroyos and fronted properties lining the great government feed dispensaries. Brandishing your tail, not I, you'd say, off to play in the earth-breaking toy box, leaving your mark on the erstwhile staying on the planet while lengthening the amount of time the waste management oligopoly will require before building Cahokia Mounds version 3.0. Maybe you knew. Maybe you knew better. Did it matter? The last time? Do you remember the day? Maybe in a different vehicle at a less robust speed, painted in a rhythmic frequency. Oh, sweet vindication! A quota-tipping trap of artificial imagination in the furtive hands of algorithmic certainty bound to catch its target at last. It was February 27th. In some other universe, where the string continued, where the date passed uneventfully, except for your string of obscenities that might have inevitably followed, but knowing the good fight would not abate, and not accepting the unfortunate fate as the defeated prey and candidate for biggest fish, largest take in Madison County's magistrate. The fight in you to press on, 
and advocate for your flawed, reckless contentions, tempered with the gray hairs now plentiful in your whiskers, and those ponderance lines and sinister brows, words spewed from a pseudonym, a nom de plume, to the great gorilla-sized middle finger that was your moat, the institutions designed to define, criticize, and reform you. But you? No. You had one last argument to make. With a swig of carbonated, caffeinated rocket fuel, you took off for space. Space, son. Look at it. Forget what I told you earlier. Dwell not in the possibilities of lust and simian-minded pursuits of baby-making hips. Fear not the suspicious suits creating radar-breaking blips, tracking your every move. Forgive the great black hole that swallows every distinct satellite. Let the freak flag fly. Bust out your finest dolomite and use your tools to craft the next gold disc that will be the legacy when all these knuckle-dragging, phallus-obsessed pinches idiotas finally render this planet unfit for consumption. In nearsighted grief, I cannot say this was the best route, because at last, but too soon, the terrestrial chase is concluded with the oneness and the awe. The universe awaits in the epilogue, with a final trust fall, the great chains of civilization lifted, and the hydrocarbon sack were gifted, each fiber, biological fractal cell tessellation endowed, stretched to design capacity until the membranes break, and the last pop disperses with a brutally satisfying finality, and at last, but far too soon, all our worldly information soughed into the vacuum star fields where no one yet dares to plow. No, they'll never, ever catch you now. Thank you. You're welcome. <sighs> so it's quite the story. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, so this is about poets and muses in the most expansive definition of the word I would consider myself poet. An amuse is anything that would bring inspiration, whether it's a, a seedling or um, a concrete wall or an insect crawling or the gorgeous girl on the train who's just terribly out of place amongst like the regular commute crowd, you know. <laughs> Once this... in a while, a goddess walks in. <laughs> or a god. Well, I mean... I, it is a very, like, transcendental and kind of beat idea, I guess, that the world is holy. And mm -hmm. I believe that. I, I see holiness in everything, from the mundane to the even some of the absolutely deplorable things that exist in human nature. There is still one shred, some amount of self-determination, something that, that pushed that forward. And to get down into that, to find out what it's about, like, that's, that's life, man. That's, that's where it is. Mm -hmm. So this poem was about my father who passed away two years ago. I wrote it the night before his funeral. And obviously there was a, a revision step that happened afterwards, but I really haven't touched it a whole lot. Mm -hmm. And I read it as his eulogy mm -hmm. because my father was a iconoclastic, but in the very ha-ha, F you kind of way. You know, he was, <laughs> he was very much like that. There, there is a good bit of him in me. <laughs> <laughs> mellowed yeah. out and tempered by my mother probably <laughs> it shows up in your poetry um, yeah maybe maybe but he was somebody who didn't really take very good care of himself he died way too young very suddenly mm -hmm. he did have a chalkboard black chevy citation when i first started spending time with him at any length when i was a older teenager Mm -hmm. um, this goes back a little bit to the, the Rick Custody origin story, I suppose. He wasn't really around. My parents were 
young teenagers when they got married and had oh, okay. me a year later. Okay. And then he wasn't really in the picture. I mean, mm-hmm. I, I, I don't have any real memories of him. I was probably a year old when they split. Mm-hmm. I knew of him. Sometimes my mother would say things like, oh my gosh, that was just like Ricky. My father's name was also. Oh, okay. Yeah, so, okay. But you're not a junior. Are you a junior? No. No, no, no. Actually, I'm sorry about that. But it's strange, almost uncanny, how much you end up like the people you genetically came from. It's so weird. Yeah. Maybe yeah. in a different environment, I would probably be a bit more, you know, unbalanced with the, the whole F you to the world sort of thing. <laughs> he used to brag about how he was so good at beating radar detectors. Mm. Like, he would drive at these insane speeds and just get away with it. Mm-hmm. And... The St. Louis metropolitan area is set up kind of interestingly. There's Missouri and there's Illinois, and it's divided by the Mississippi River. I was mm-hmm. born on the Illinois side of it, right across okay. from the city of St. Louis. Okay. And that's where he grew up and where he lived. St. Um, Louis. And never, never left. Like, okay. he always lived there. Okay. So he had a pretty good beat on it. That was mm-hmm. the 5570. That's where the Interstate 55, north-south, and the Interstate 70 kind of merge and go all the way up to Chicago. Okay. That is a very economically depressed part of the region and really arguably part of the country. East St. Louis, I don't know if you know about East St. Louis, but it's it's not a very nice place to live. It, it was at one one point very, you know, yeah, on I, the up I only know the Judy Garland movie. Okay. That's probably not helpful in that, this scenario. That was probably before East St. Louis became like crack central. Um no it, it yeah, is that's not the song she sang. No, no 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 <laughs> It was actually declared as a federal empowerment zone. I want to say in 1993, President Clinton showed up and they built a Walgreens and it was like a big watershed event and then nothing became of it. Kind of like in a very classic sort of government lip service to revamping an area. Okay, so, so they didn't follow through. They just started no, something but never no, no, put no. in the time that it was needed. It never made much sense to me as a kid, even as a young kid, driving through the area mm-hmm. in the back seat, and then later driving a car through the area. That How could people completely write off an entire region. How could people write off people? People trying to make their way. I mean, the people that are being blasted out of their minds with substances or with you know, abject poverty and <laughs> virulent racism. Mm-hmm. Um, talk about a lot of politicians. They have, you know, good angels and bad angels. Most of the elected people, I want to say, most of the time, want to do the right thing and want to do right by their constituents. So when I see something like that, I'm just like, holy crap. How could you be so obtuse? How could you be so blind to this this thing that's going on around you? Like these are your people. This is your your area. Yeah. Well, your... I find that people who are not where it's not their experience, not their personal experience. Sometimes oh, I talk about this with another poet guest about the mix or the balance between experience and empathy. Okay. So one can make up with the lack of another. That's a good but, point. But when you're trying to implement policies, you really need to have that hands-on experience in some ways because there are so many moving parts that if you don't have the hands-on experience, it's very easy to get it wrong. Like opening in Walgreens and somehow expect that to just lift up the entire area economically. It's a lot on Walgreens, even though they're a big chain. But still, that was business now. Who knows what they were before, right? What, two decades ago? So it's always interesting. I feel like a lot of times people mean well, but that well-meaning doesn't always translate to good experiences or the necessary operational things to change what's been around for decades, let's say. Because no neighborhood transforms like that, right? It takes decades to go 
down as it takes decades to build up. So it, it really takes a lot of effort. And, and there's another thing that people, I don't know, maybe it has to do with the fact that we as human beings don't live all that long, 80 years if we're lucky. If we're lucky. But you probably have a better, since you do... Benefit management. So you've seen, well, medium is what, 80, but it's more for the whole country. It's less than 80. Life expectancy at birth now is approaching, I think it's a 79-ish for females and 73, I believe, um, for males. And if you're neither of those things, I guess we'll need more information for the data set. Basically, yeah, I mean, that's somebody born today. So somebody that was born 35 years ago, somebody was born 60 years ago. It's interesting the way that that pulls the numbers up because you're dealing with a mean. And mm-hmm. so there are people who die before and people who die after. Right. And it kind of just all settles in the middle somewhere. And I'm sure there's right. some other things they cook into that recipe when they um, when they come with those stats. Yeah, but, and that changes drastically when you're talking about certain neighborhoods. When it's predominantly poor, riddled with substance abuse problems because they're trying to escape their poverty in every way possible. And then that really drags down the average. I don't know if you ever looked at the average life expectancy in this area, the neighborhood that you're talking about. It's significantly lower, but not, not as much as you would think. The quality of life is certainly affected. And then things like propensity for catastrophic life-ending events, violent crime, overdoses, obviously, um, STDs, things that can bring about an end of life or a really just incredibly lowered quality of life very much manifests itself in in pockets of poverty and otherwise middle-income or even wealthy areas. So my father was kind of a product of his environment a bit. He did okay. He was middle class, lower middle class when growing up. I don't think he ever saw beyond what was in his frame or in his space. He was very much like locked into, I'm going to, I mean, he had a very 80s mindset. I think his, his emotional growth got stunted around the like Gordon Gecko era. Because I think that, that he's he was just so, just I'm about getting what's mine and making sure that I'm taken care of and my immediates are taken care of. Mm-hmm. Never mind, never paid any child support my growing up. <laughs> right, right. So <laughs> but, his immediate was kind of right, small. Exactly. Very small. Yeah. Maybe just uh, up to him. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> he's he was very self-reliant in that way. But but to okay. a fault because I, I don't I don't know if he realized the number of people that maybe he did depend on or people that depended on him. He had two other sons in, in another marriage or mm-hmm. another relationship. And they were at the funeral. And I hadn't spent a lot of time around my like until I was an adult and only very briefly and then I would probably I get text messages from him like, mm. long paragraph text messages like he would go on and <laughs> on and on and I would just respond back and keep it in kind you know because that was that was kind of the way our relationship was mm-hmm, as, mm-hmm. as, as an adult right. I was kind of like talking him off the ledge a bit because he was always so dang this and la 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 this and uh, you know I'm just like alright this is this is his this is his experience this is what he's going through I'll right. just bring him back to center and if he has anything interesting in there anything because he was notoriously paranoid. Oh my God, he, he was so paranoid. He didn't drink, he didn't smoke, he didn't do anything. He did eat very poorly and would go through a gallon of Mountain Dew a day. Like this guy, I don't even know how you could... He used to mix it up with orange juice and make this putrid looking and he carried it around. And it was just, oh my God. That's what you mentioned, right? Yeah, in the, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. No, in the beginning. Yeah, I, don't, I, think, I think he liked that about me, that there was maybe enough of my mother and me that he could see that there was a 
like a hope for something. Like, mm-hmm. I mean, he used to chastise me a bit for being so naive about NSA surveillance and stuff like that. And I'm just right. like, man, it, I, I know it's there. It doesn't bother me as much. If I had to think about it constantly, mm-hmm. it would drive me insane. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's a lot that you can't do anything about, basically. And also, you don't really know how widespread the thing is. And he sounded like somebody who used Mountain Dew's Cafe to really oh just God. sort of he enlarge was, the whole thing. He had burner phones for quite a while. He would change his phone and his number every three months. Like, oh, look, another 314 number, another 618 number. That's my father. <laughs> wow. Yeah, yeah. But did he have a specific reason for that, or do you think is he's just using his brain powers in that direction rather than something more productive? A little bit both. I think that being married so young, and my mom kind of saying I'm not having this, he sent me aside one day. I was probably about 17 or 18. I was visiting, sidebar, moved to Georgia the last two years of, of high school. Mm. I couldn't wait to get back to St. Louis, so I, as soon as I graduated, I went right back. Oh, um, okay. So I'd see him a little more often then. Mm-hmm. He was telling me that, the apex of his life was when he and my mother were together. And after he died and going through my grandmother's basement and giving myself an intense respiratory infection doing so, because all the mold and everything down there, yeah, that was, those were not good times getting back into town afterwards. But I could see what he was talking about. It was very just idyllic and beautiful. Mm-hmm. And How long were they together? You said? From the time they were like, 13 or 14 until 18 and 19. Okay. Yeah. That's not very long. No, no. I mean, in the scheme of things, like, oh my gosh, no. But that was for him, like, that was his peak. And he was actually a pretty, you know, he took care of himself okay growing up. I mean, I'd seen the pictures. He looks more like me, you know, when he was Mm -hmm. younger. Because, you know, he got very large throughout his 20s. Like, we're talking 400 pounds large. Like, he was a big dude. Oh, wow. Yeah. When it's a gorilla-sized middle finger, that it was. He had a right, very yeah. gorilla-like appearance. You yeah, know? you really give us a good sense, even though you don't talk about it much. You give us a good sense of what he looks like. You give us a sense of who he is, despite the fact that it's sprinkled out everywhere. But there's little chunks, little chunks where you get a peek of what he's like. Yeah, yeah I, 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 there's there's never any throwaway words in anything that I write, and I know you're the same way. Cause you, you write shorter poems, guys, <laughs> way more words. Yeah, I, yeah, yeah. You know, that's a skill that I need to start honing in, especially for things like emails and things like that. Because uh, no, <laughs> honestly, as I just said to to another person, because I had another interview before, she also writes longer things, and I said, well, look, I'm the same way. I just spit out what's in me. When it's ended, it's ended. I'm not going to prolong anything. I'm not going to make anything shorter. So I have long things. I have short things. My things tend to be on the shorter side. You still haven't read, though, some of your stuff. It, it seems like it's longer. Yeah. Well, because I hate reading the same thing over and over. Exactly. So yeah. when I go to District 4, I pretty much just read whatever I recently wrote. So it just depends on what was bugging me at the time. That's so it might, the challenge, right? Yeah, it's, yeah, exactly. There's a thing that I do every month, so I have to write something. It, well, I don't, <laughs> I don't write specifically for District 4 because, because I have something coming up. I write because something inspired me. It's weird because I tend to write right after District 4 because all the poets inspire me. Just get me into sure. the mindset of writing poetry. So I've had at least two or three poems that's just coming out of District 4. I'm like, ooh, something... Just came to me. 
I just got inspired. And that mm-hmm. happens in every open mic that I go to, every poetry event, whether or not it's open mic or it's some lecture about poetry, something will come to me and I will write about that. And really, I can't tell what the length will be. It's no. really like a visitation from the muse, though it's not like a religious experience. It's a very spiritual experience. Mm. When I lived down south, and I worked at a KFC my first job, slinging chicken in the South. I used to write raps on chicken bucket lids. Cool. Yeah, I wish I still had some of them. I think my mom does somewhere. Oh, that's good. She keeps stuff like that. You gotta scan those in before you lose them. Yeah, you get inspiration from anything. Yeah. You know, like... Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> and I write about anything that is on my Twitter or no, Instagram. Either Instagram or Twitter, it says, I will write at the slightest prompting. Twitter was a great idea. It was sort of like calling something out to the universe and seeing what came back. And then as the platform became more monetized and more siloed, I guess, and people were using it for like their actual like day-to-day news consumption, it got a lot angrier and a lot stupider, I think. <laughs> <laughs> well, I actually do use it for news consumption now. I'm more involved with it now. This time around, I'm using it for for the poetry stuff. I find a lot of writers on Twitter. I think Twitter is like what you make of it, right? Some parts of it is horrible. And I've had some pros because I commented on political stuff that I was reading. And mm-hmm. sometimes I engage with them, sometimes I don't. depends on how I feel. But I think it also depends on what you subscribe to. Because I subscribe to a lot of the news outlets I know are legitimate that I've followed for years. Or, or ones that are from reliable sources. I think Twitter is still very useful for writers, especially because we're wordsmiths, right? That's what we do. So sometimes it's not a poem. Sometimes we just want to rent a little bit. And Twitter is very useful. I do have a Twitter account that does that. Mm-hmm. And it's usually just like screaming at the TV while watching a baseball game. Because I would find that one of the most interactive and people that were the most likely to respond, like I could drop the full 120 characters exactly of like the best thought that would have just popped in my head. Like everything's just wonderful and no response. They'd criticize somebody's move in the seventh inning in the bullpen all of a sudden people <laughs> that are responding. So it was like, oh, yeah, yeah. okay. Well, Borch brings out a lot of passion from testosterone and contact high. (laughs) Yeah. I think it also is shared identity, though, because a lot of people, you know, and this is the present marketing ploy du jour, they're like, they kind of want to buy into the regionalism and the, this is your city, this is your whatever. Well, they have to, right? Otherwise, they won't get the money that they're trying to generate because they have to get in on that this is your team they want you to have that identity and then fight others almost like a virtual fight because sports is kind of the the much safer right, version right, of right, war right. this could be like westeros yeah. <laughs> exactly <laughs> we didn't have sports exactly it's a good outlet i don't like how much it's costing these days it's becoming less of a people's thing than a more almost a elitist but still yeah. very visceral physical Thing. I mean, you have to pay a lot to get into baseball games. They a lot of money to build the stadiums. It's insane. Uh-huh. Like, that's the dumbest thing ever. But. John Oliver had a report on stadium building and how there's always this kind of temporary economic boom. And when they pitch them, there's always some kind of, oh, yeah, it's going to generate so many jobs. And, again, it's the same idea of what you mentioned in the beginning about St. Louis, about this Walgreens thing. It's the expectation that somehow it's going to be sustained, but it's never sustainable. And then 
they abandon them very quickly and then they move on to another stadium that costs way too much money, taxpayer money, and doesn't really generate sustainable revenues for the neighborhood, for the communities. It's interesting if you watch John Oliver, you might want to... Oh, I do. I, do. I, yeah. I don't know that particular segment, but yeah. but it does sound very much in keeping with, with his ideas. I like that he'll he'll hone in on something that is absolutely ludicrous. He did a dialysis one when I was working oh, for Cynius nice. back in the day. Okay, okay. <laughs> yes. yeah, yeah. Nobody knows about this stuff. I've actually written poetry about dialysis before. And it, cool. It's just like, it, it's it's a terrible segment. <laughs> do some research. It's, it's really awful. St. Louis, with the stadium thing, actually said kind of like, oh, we'll do whatever we can to keep the NFL and St. Louis, and people will bend over backwards. And the NFL just left them high and dry anyway, went to Los Angeles. So it's just like, yeah, it's, it's one of those things. Like, it, it very much conveys that you're kind of being taken advantage of by the people who are holding the cards or holding the strings, kind of saying, you know, yeah, yeah we really don't care what you think. We're going to go with whatever it makes us the most money, you know. Yeah, yeah. Because at the end of the day, they're not about sports, more about the greenbacks. No. Not the team. So my poem is similar to yours in terms of this. I like this poem. Thank you. I'm going to tell you, like, I in, in so few words, I was like, oh my gosh, I might tear up a little bit. This is, oh. maybe I'm just getting at that age. It's actually very similar to yours, now, especially now that we talk about it. It's called, Want to Come With Me. She has been roused from her couch potato stint by an invitation that interrupted her favorite soap of the day. She rolled her eyes and sighed in exasperation, then a reminder from a third party translated intentions betwixt husband and wife, long separated before the end of their I do's, before a morning trip to the John, continued on a stretcher to the morgue. He still hoped to spend time with her. Yeah, all the feels right there. You talk about something that's so mundane and so beautiful. Thank you. When I was a little kid, I used to see people behave like this. Even when I was a teenager, I could see couples that were very much, like, they got it. Like, I don't know how they got it when that mechanism comes into play, but it's sort of like there is an understanding, something that just clicks almost at, a, like, an atomic level. Mm. So that's really wonderful. What was the inspiration for this this was my stepdad. I mean, in terms of category, that's what he falls under. But I never really felt that way because my mom had gotten married again later, you know, when I was already an adult. So I never mm-hmm. felt like he was a stepdad. Sure. He didn't raise me. But that is the category definition he falls under. Your mom got a redo later in life. It's like, all right, well, now <laughs> yeah, that uh, yeah, yeah. everything's taken care of, and all right, I'm just going <laughs> to do what makes me happy and... Yeah, is that, that's usually how it works, right? Yeah, yeah, well, I don't know. I, I felt like in neither marriage she chose something that was really a good fit for her. You could hear the distance in the poem. Right, like, leave me alone. I'm, yeah. I'm doing this thing. Yeah, she was much more in love with her TV. Am I? <laughs> there, there was much more interaction there than I... But well, it doesn't do anything back. They might listen to you these days, but... <laughs> <laughs> I don't think it's gonna like. Yeah, actually, these days she might actually get exactly what she wants from their TV. <laughs> well, it's more a TV DVD combo from the phone because she was watching all these TV series that she got on DVDs. So she was watching them 
all the time. She will watch TV hours per day. She has like the whole guiding light box set. Like. Yeah, yeah, whatever it is, it's these miniseries, I guess novellas. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, they're just on constantly, and as soon as she finished watching one, she would put on another DVD. There are usually like three or four DVD box sets, and she would just continue. It's binging. And these series, just like Game of Thrones, if you see Game of Thrones, if you binge an entire season, you need a psychiatrist afterwards because oh it God. is so traumatizing because yeah each show is supposed to give you this roller coaster of emotions can you imagine doing that for 10 shows in a row and this woman will be doing it for 80 shows not in a row because there's not enough time in the day if she had enough time in the day she would i'm sure but yeah just binging <laughs> like that the and writing's a bit more uneven in those series though <laughs> <laughs> no, seriously. I'm not talking about quality of writing. It's just emotional because each episode of these series is meant to give you that up and down, that roller coaster, so that you will continue to come back. You know, it's always a cliffhanger. So she's addicted, is what you're saying? Yeah, she's addicted sounds, to soaps. Yeah, pretty much. It's, that's what it sounds like, right? Wow. I wonder what that tribe looks like. If they like hang out together, just like a group. No, of no, people they don't have time. Ones. They're just binging. Okay? <laughs> in the background. I've seen this one before. He comes back to life. It's fine. No, no, no. <laughs> she hates it when. Well, she would go feed the animals and whatnot. She actually does this that that drives me nuts because sometimes I would get into some show with her. I mean, like, ooh, this is really interesting, especially historic costume drama, and then I'm like, oh my god, and then what happens? <laughs> oh my know? gosh! Yeah, definitely. Um, but she does this thing where she would stop in the middle of something really dramatic to go feed a cat <laughs> or something like well, that. It, her, her dose is a little bit different, though, because if yeah. she's watched so much of it, she's like, all right, I know exactly what to do. At least she's not forgetting about ordinary maintenance stuff, you know what I mean? Like, Yeah, but I feel like she's doing that because she doesn't like things that makes her too emotional. So really, it's to stop that from happening. She hits a point where she's like, okay, I have to stop it. I mean, and then she used the excuse of feeding the cat or whatever it is. So that's what I think it is. I mean, we never... I want to sit her down in front of a psychiatrist and really see what's going on in there. <laughs> but yeah, so the poem is really about my stepdad. It sounds like there might have been an unbalanced relationship there a bit. <laughs> yeah, it was... His second marriage as well, his first wife had passed away, and he had married another Asian lady. This guy was white. And he kind of, from his first wife, he had certain expectations, which my mom did not fit at all. You can't do that to somebody. Yeah, no, it's very much, there's very much uh, prejudice involved. It might be a positive stereotype, but he definitely was using the stereotype. And he thought just another Asian lady would do. I mean, during the honeymoon period, quote-unquote, dating period, she acted very differently. What if you don't believe in a honeymoon period? It sounds insane. I don't necessarily think that any of it has to go away. So when you brought up that, you know, she'd rather be sitting on TV, mm -hmm. you know, it's kind of an annoyance. He's still kind of making the effort, but for a different reason, obviously, because right. he's expecting, like, in exchange for me, you know, making the bid, I expect you to do whatever. Yeah, yeah. He just didn't really understand what he was getting into. And in that way, I felt very sorry for him, as you can tell from the tone of the poem. Because sure. he was trying, and she totally didn't get it. She wanted him for other reasons. And it's very sad to me, because they had been married for 10 years, actually. Right. And it was just pretty much from the beginning. I never felt that they were compatible. 
they each gave the other something that they thought they wanted, but not really what they needed. It's not even companionship. I guess for her it was more security. Yeah, I think for him he wanted, when his first wife was almost like a mother figure in terms of just caretaking, so much caretaking to get everything. He grew up with his first wife. Like his first wife, like yes. helped him. <laughs> no, pretty much. That's what I feel like because she was also older than him uh, and she took on this caretaking role. Um, she took it at least a little niece. I don't even know. They never had children. I don't even know if they have sexual relations, okay? But they never had children. As far as I know, they were actually living in separate bedrooms. <laughs> sexual relations. Really? It's, it's, it's like that. It's almost in scientific, very scientific terms. We're not sure if they performed quite as successfully. Yeah. I feel like, yeah, I'm like with binoculars outside before I even knew them. a long courtship that... <laughs> Ultimately led nowhere. Yeah. And you see these humanoids that are in a marital relationship, but, but they are not fulfilling the obligations or whatever. It should never be an obligation. No. I know that people sometimes feel like that. But, but you know, like the, the way I just said it when you said sexual relation, it does sound like I'm like a biologist <laughs> hiding somewhere in the bushes observing these animals in the wild kind of yeah. Like well, it's good to kind of emotionally program. distance yourself from that too just a little bit by saying that because you're like you don't want to like when you realize your parents are people like they talk about that I think it was actually a uh, theme for uh, Mesa Art Center's Warp the Cafe thing is you realize your parents are people but like you don't want to you don't want to think about that you know what I mean like yeah. <laughs> you want to look at it in very like clinical terms I forget if I read this for that theme hmm. I might have read this for that theme oh well cool yeah, thanks for bringing that up. You weren't even there. I wasn't there. I was <laughs> playing ball, actually, I think. I Again. <laughs> yeah, well, they moved to a Thursday night baseball league. And, uh, uh, okay. okay. Yeah. yeah. I'm pretty sure I read this for that theme. I definitely read this poem for one of their themes, but I'm pretty sure it's that particular theme. <laughs> so it's perfect that you brought that up. It's like you intuitive. Maybe. I'm thinking about the stretcher part. So was that meant to be figurative, or was he literally carried out on, on a stretcher? It's very literal. The poem is very literal. I mean, it certainly... Can you strike be... me as a fairly literal person, so... Yeah, I... I <laughs> Even uh, with the talk of muses and inspirations, you, you seem yeah. like you're pretty down-to-earth and like, this is actually happening. Yeah, okay. I... With a, lot of poems, <laughs> with a lot of poems, yes. Uh, but especially this poem, definitely. I didn't even go on a tangent in any kind of metaphorical way. It was more a, here's a small feeling, blah, and, and that's it. Again, in your business, you know what percentage of people basically die on the toilet. Yeah, from, from an actuarial standpoint, yeah. I'm sure that's something yeah. you know. But it's not really what benefit management, it's more like there is an X pile of money that the government or an insurer or whatever is meant to spend on something, mm -hmm. and then there are intermediaries and third parties all trying to make a cut of right. it and manage Well, you're that. in another part, right, basically. You're in another part of it, but the basis of insurance companies is that they need to know the actuary. The actuary part is the undergirding. They need to know what chances there are because they have to balance insuring people but also making a profit, and they need to use those percentages to their favor. So I don't mean like specifically what you do right, for insurance. Right now I'm, in, I'm actually in the hospice and skilled nursing 
So it's sort of like these people are pretty much earmarked for end of life. Mm -hmm. So yeah, there's really not a whole lot of calculus that goes into that. I think there might be from the hospice management standpoint because Mm -hmm. what they determine or how far they'll bend over backwards for a particular family's request might actually depend on how long they think they'll be on service, which is cool. (laughs) I I just want to completely just like destroy that paradigm. But, I mean, it's a business, I suppose. I just Right. Well, that's the part of it, is that ultimately it's a business. Even the sports you were talking about, ultimately it's Ugh. a business. So when it comes to one or the other, then it's always going to come down to the side of money, unfortunately. Because it's a business. It's a genuine challenge where you're like, look, baseball's a game of failure. You know you're going to fail. Even the best of them, 70% of the time, you're not going to... Mm. So maybe I'm drawn to that. Maybe I'm like unintentionally masochistic in that regard. Where <laughs> I pick things that are like impossible scenarios and I want to put myself in them. See, this is why I think... <laughs> this is why I refuse to go to any more baseball games to watch. Because it feels very masochistic. Because you're success. waiting... It feels so good. No, I'm sorry. It's, I don't it's think so it's hard. worth the wait. I don't think it's worth the wait. I don't. I know how exciting it is when there's a hit, even a fucking base hit. Okay, but it's not. It's no. I'm not okay with the waiting. I could be doing so many more things that I would enjoy much more with my time. That's why I'm just like, that's it. I I'm happy to play, but I don't want to be watching it. That's fair. <laughs> This is just another project I'm going to undertake. Just every month, the District 4 is like, hey, uh, did you see the game last night? <laughs> like, you know the answer to that. <laughs> is there such a thing, though? I, I know this was a suboptimal arrangement between the two of them. If it worked for them for the 10 years until it's passing, I don't think that ever has to go away. That, that thing where you're, you're just like, no, 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 no. You know, like, it probably looks disgusting from the outside. I mean, it, it gets measured. You know, people are like, I don't want to see that. I think that there there is a way to have continued, prolonged passion for that other person. I think so, too. But those are the, the good marriages that last. I think if it had worked between them, if they actually had chemistry that's outside of just very, very practical reasons for marrying, mm-hmm. then probably he wouldn't have died. <laughs> So and certainly soon. would have gotten his cookie. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and hopefully, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm obviously hoping that my mother would enjoy the two because... <laughs> Does she listen to the podcast? No. Oh, well, she should. <laughs> oh my god who is this Rick Fool and why were we talking about this <laughs> where are you discussing my psychology <laughs> yeah no this is why we're talking so so openly about it because she doesn't and she couldn't understand it if she did so let's keep talking shit about them <laughs> <laughs> talking shit this is, this is a helpful teachable moment I mean it, it it's, is it's something that it's easy to get drawn into something that's part of the reason why I don't play video games mm-hmm. and I don't read a lot of books and that sounds kind of silly because like they're two very different things like two different consumers but really honestly it's the same kind of thing mm-hmm. right so games now are so complex so realistic so just visceral and interesting well Easter they have eggs. a lot of backstory to them absolutely as well, right you could get lost in that world mm-hmm. if, you, if you're not careful. And there are people who do. Mm-hmm. And I would rather my experiences account for something in the real world. 
<laughs> yes? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I don't know if you play video games or not. I know you got this cute little mouse here with animated characters on it. So maybe... Yeah, no, no. It's just because I want, I want to look at something pretty when I'm okay. using my mouse. They're like, no, it's my gamer but, mouse. That's no, weird. no, no. I had a friend who worked in gaming, and she was getting us to do this game, a very interesting game. It's just an optical course, but... It has a very kind of dark, almost goth backstory. The drawing is really super cool. And I got really hooked on it. I was playing it at her place. At some point, she was like, I'm going to sleep now. Or something. She had to basically say that to get me like... To sleep now. <laughs> no, she didn't, she didn't say that. It didn't get to that point. But basically, she was starting to give me hints like, when the fuck are you getting out of my fucking house? Kind of hints. Downtown Phoenix stories. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, it's very addictive. I understand that I used to have, okay, a long time ago, Atari games, and I used to play them. I definitely get really into Pac-Man, even yeah. now, you know. But when Atari you baseball. Them. You play some Atari baseball? Oh, no. Oh, oh no. Oh. <laughs> so I know a little bit about gaming, which is why I'm not following gaming anymore, because I also fall into basically a pit. It's not, I don't even look at it like addiction. Addiction, there's a very distinct mechanism. It's like, um, I'm trying to think of the name, the test they did with the dog and the ringing of the bell. Pavlovian. Pavlovian, yes, thank you. And I'm like, oh my gosh, that's more similar, I think, to that mechanism. I think with some people, it's, you want to follow this as far as it goes, and you find yourself on an alternate timeline. You think you can return back to yours at any point. It's almost mm-hmm. like living in a different world. Right, right. But very, very Inception-like, I guess. Right. Of course you like Inception. Me too. Well, I mean, yeah, it's, it very much touches on those themes. I mean, part of escapism for a lot of people mm-hmm, is mm-hmm. that they want to be somewhere that they're not. But let's say you like where you are. It's fine. Mm-hmm. It's just you find yourself getting so engrossed into something else that it becomes or it takes over, you don't even realize that you've left the other thing behind. And yeah. I don't know if that's, I don't know if addiction is the right way to say it. It's, it's almost like a, it's like time travel in a way. It, it's it's like visiting a different world. It is, it is. And with virtual reality gaming starting to really gain a foothold, you can definitely lose that. And what was that movie that was basically about VR? Oh, Ready Player One was a recent one they did. Right? No, not Ready Player One. I didn't see I, it. I'm talking about like maybe two decades ago. The Matrix? No, Matrix no, 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 no. Matrix is not a game. This was literally a virtual reality game with what's his name? The guy who's the bad guy who's in Captain Marvel. Did you see Captain Marvel? Yes, I did. Oh, Jude Law. Jude yeah, Law yeah. Wait, spoiler, spoiler alert, sorry. Have you not seen that movie? Jude Law's the bad guy. You don't have to say it again. <laughs> you can edit that part out. Amazing digital technology these days. So Jude Law was in it, and he kind of got lost in a VR game. And I feel like now VR is to the point that we can have that experience now. I read the title of an article that said uh, something about if you get seasick from getting into VR experiences. Because you do have like physical feelings, you do have to physically move things. So VR is very, very interesting, very immersive. So you can definitely get lost in a completely different world. I think as a creative tool, it's fascinating because it's carving something out of nothing without any tangible which is scary in a way, mm-hmm. but it's also 
like, oh my gosh, once I master this silly thing, once the novelty of it wears off, I could actually build a world in this thing. Right. That, Which is sort of like real life, isn't it? It's existence with a Z. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. 74% on Rotten Tomatoes. It looks horribly dated by the graphics, but <laughs> I would say it's probably... Jennifer Jason Lee. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, she's in the yeah, movie. Yeah, I wasn't sure if it was that movie. I bet they have it in this library. They probably do. They have lots they of have things a, at the library. They have a really good video collection. In fact, I'm overdoing something that I haven't even seen. <laughs> Libraries are a Pandora's box for me. Luckily, this one's maze-like and has lots of funky-smelling corridors because I could probably... <laughs> And that's, again, it's the fear, right? Because mm. books, you don't even need the art. You could get into a book and everything else just gets shut off. Yes. To really yeah. absorb it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, for people like us who write, who have that ability to imagine the world, who can really just suspend our disbelief. And yeah. that's why they banned them way back. No, that was usually <laughs> somebody making some point. Like, I have to do this to prove that I'm more worthy or pure than somebody. Yeah, or yeah. that I've got the... Hammer on something that's or you can only dangerous. read my book. Yeah. Basically every every professor's dream. In any case. So unfortunately we have to end it, but before we do, tell us where we can go see you read. Oh, uh, District Four, obviously, every third Thursday in downtown Mesa, Jared's yeah. Coffee House. I did do another one. I'll just give a shout-out to these people because they're really nice. Down in uh, downtown Chandler, Connect and Heal is a uh, yeah. nonprofit. I read with them for a while until they moved to downtown Chandler. Nothing against downtown Chandler, just it's farther than I'd like to go. Hey, I go, okay? I go. <laughs> you still, have no excuses. You have a it? car, yes. Second Sunday, they do the workshop at the library, and then they do the open mic at Improv. They're still doing it there. Im- Improv. Maniac. Maniac. Thank Improv. you. It's really lovely. I try to go, but because... I release episodes on Sunday sometimes. I can't make it. It's, it sucks. I hate it. And because the community is very nurturing. So I miss going because I'm consumed by the podcast. I don't get to write as much as I used to. So I try to go to anything that basically make me go write something. So how do people follow you on social media? I know you have some social media. They, they don't. Give us the links. <laughs> Give us all I your links. I don't really, I don't really use social media. I'm on Facebook, but I don't post anything there because no one reads on Facebook. I've got to start doing this stuff. I imagine there are some people that this is like, you've got to do this thing, you got to do this thing. I'm like, yeah, yeah, whatever. I don't mean to write it off like that, but mm-hmm. I just, I don't see the point if no one's, this is like the thing. Like, I, I like the interaction with people. I, I don't Right, really, right, right. But still, I mean, for this day and age, any poet, any writer who wants to develop their craft in a more professional way, they yeah. do need to have it, like Instagram. But I still find I Twitter. I Instagram, too. Yes. but I don't post anything. All right, there. just give us the links, all right? All right, it's at Castillo Porasolas. Um, it's C-A-S-T-I-L-L-O-P-O-R-O-L-A-S. I don't really post much on there. There's pictures. What is all that? Waves. Oh, okay. Okay, okay. That sounds very poetic. Do you write in Spanish or? Sometimes. Usually just little things. It's weird, like you move your fingers, you think you use Spanish a whole lot more and you don't. (laughs) It's it's kind of funny. Um, Yeah, I mean, I I drop little things here and there. I used to actually want to write prose in Spanish. I know, like, to impress a couple of muses that I had at one point, I was, I very much did that. Uh, not so much anymore. So it's just like it's it's in there. It's it's kind of part of I guess the poetic identity 
but it, it's not something that I do regularly, so maybe I should. You're fluent. I'm not fluent. You're no, not fluent. No. Oh, okay, okay. But actually writing it and reading it, it it's easier than, than speaking it, I think. Yeah, it's always like that. Yeah, I, I feel the same. And you should come to Palabras then. Palabras every third Saturday of the month on 16 and McDowell. Yes, you're going to have to come to Phoenix. But there's an event. There tends to be bilingual readings as well. And oh, I love so that. You should love definitely that check that out. Anyway, so... Both Facebook and Instagram is... Facebook, it's just... I think it's El Castellano. Okay. That was my pen name back in the day. El Castellano. Just a Spaniard, basically. Yeah, cool. (laughs) And specific region. You're going to start a fight in Spain again. (laughs) But anyways, if you give me a link, I'll put them on the notes so people can link to them and you'll get a lot of followers and maybe that'll induce you into posting more things. I would like eventually to do one of those book things where you publish a book and like cool. just kind of yeah. not to sell it, just to say, here, would you like to read along sometime? Yeah, that would be when nice. When anybody reads. Yeah. It's something that I like to do. I like to visualize their words like in my head as they're saying them and then putting myself in, in their space. Like it, it's, yeah. it's fascinating. Yeah, especially your poems. I like hearing them, but reading them is another layer and because it's tends to be longer, so it's good to go back and say, oh, okay, this is the part I might have missed. So it's good to have that. But in any case, thank you very much for coming on to the show. Thank you for having me. Of course. It was wonderful. And that concludes the Sunday, July 28th episode of Poets and Muses. You can follow us on our website at poetsandmuses.com or on our social media at SoundCloud, Instagram, or Twitter under Poets and Muses. You can also subscribe to our weekly newsletter either at the bottom of our poetsandmuses.com website or at the upper right-hand side of our Poets and Muses SoundCloud page. I'm your host, Imogen A-Rate. I hope you have a wonderful week, and I look forward to bringing you another episode next Sunday.